Well, welcome um, again. It's um, a privilege to be here to be able to uh, share the word with you. And again, um, we're building up pace. We're coming to the end. You know, the end is 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 kind of almost there for the book of Nehemiah. So we began in this year in the book of Ezra um, for our, our week of prayer and fasting. And now um, for our Sunday services throughout the beginning of this year, we've been looking at Nehemiah um, under the theme of the, un- the unchanging God in changing times. And so um, no doubt we correlate this to the, to the season that we're currently in. Um, you know, as the world looks out at um, obviously the devastation it's obviously gone through and, and looks to rebuild, um, we also see the fact that as a church we are constantly rebuilding ourselves, you know, and not necessarily just because of COVID, but because, Lord, our, the seasons we go through, the, 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 the different climates we go through, we need to make sure we change in such a way that we are continuing um, to honor the unchanging God. So many, many times we may feel like, well, you know, actually, um, things have changed, and so therefore my relationship to God has changed. But again, we as a church um, reconform ourselves to say, no, we will meet the standard that the God sets, even in these changing times. And so that's, that's our theme um, for this beginning of the year. And hopefully it has been meeting the need, has been helping you, challenging you, um, encouraging you, enriching you, um, whatever way we pray that it continues to do so. So before I kind of jump into the text today, um, we're going to, we, we, as we said, we're kind of taking more of an overview of Nehemiah as opposed to kind of like a, a line upon line, um, kind of breaking it down and trying to give you all the, all the nuggets in there. And so we're going to miss a few chapters because, again, the repetition of names and whatnot. So we're missing out chapter 11. But just to kind of give you an idea of what, what is actually there is that after what we dealt with last week in chapter 10, now people commit themselves to living. So having signed this commitment this, um, to, to kind of look after the city, to look after the temple of God, to look after the people of God, people now nominate, are now, now take lots to live in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, for better part, was desolate. Obviously, maybe a few people were around working and doing certain things, obviously. But now people, and specifically the leaders, take upon themselves the risk of living in this dilapidated city. The city had been, obviously, devastated since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who raised it to the ground. The temple has been built. But again, the temple was that place, which, that place of priority. The temple was rebuilt because that's what they saw they needed first. There were no build, no no houses were built. Um, the infrastructure wasn't there. But now that time has come. The wall has now been built, and so now people felt the confidence to come and repopulate. And so that's what you get is that in chapter eleven you get a list of those who now committed themselves to going in and living in the actual city. And that leaders themselves have taken it upon themselves to do this. Those who don't have, um, the, 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 who, don't ha- who, who come out of that list, they live in the surrounding villages. And there is a list there at the end of chapter 11 that now tells us those who lived outside in the villages. And again, 
their details that, um, though we're not going to teach on today, but just to kind of build us up to where we are today. And then, in chapter 12, in the first 46 verses, we have another list of, the, of those who kind of came up from the time of Zerubbabel. So now we're, we're, we're kind of a few generations on since Zerubbabel, who was the first person to kind of come up. So Zerubbabel was the crown prince, so to speak. He was the heir of David, and he came up, but he never took the position of a king. He came and took the position of a governor, um, as given to him by, by, um, by Cyrus, who allowed him to go back and to rebuild. And so Zerubbabel and all these people have come. So it's a list showing that the, the heritage, that these are the people that made this contribution. So often we can feel that anything that we accomplish in our own time is really actually down to us. But we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? We stand on those who have come before. And that's what this is, is capitulating. It's, it's showing us that this is the legacy that has come, that has brought us here. So even though these people lived over a hundred years ago, they were important to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah because they, their foundations has allowed them to build well. You know, so even Zerubbabel, who committed to rebuilding the temple, done so in his lifetime. And so likewise, here we are seeing Ezra bring the law, and we see Nehemiah now bringing um, the, 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 the security of a wall, so to speak. So now we come to verse 40, sorry, 44. So that's up to verse 43. So we come now to, um, sorry, 27. So that was kind of covering, for, sorry, verse 1 to 26. Now verse 27 says this, and I will read for you, then I will pray, um, and then we'll get into this. So reading from the ESV, from verse 27 of chapter 12, of Nehemiah. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem, from the villages um, of the Netophites, from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Azameth, from the, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then they brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, to the Dung Gate, and after them went Hosiah and the half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah and Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons, whose with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milal, Gilal, Maya, Nithaniel, Judah, and Hanani. With the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, 
at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gates of Ephraim and by the gates of Yeshanai and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me. The priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minanim, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, Hanani, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Elazar, Uzziah, Johanan, Micaiah, Elam, and Ezra. And the singers sang with Jezebiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms and the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the town. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the, directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portion for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for, that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word on this um, special Sunday of, of honoring our mothers, dear Lord God. But today, Lord, we want to thank you that we can honor the Father, the Son, and your Holy Spirit also, Lord. And this indeed makes um, this day and any other day special. Lord, even now as we come to your word and we say, Father, feed us, Lord, we pray that you will indeed feed us. You've given us a promise that, Lord, your spirit will go forth and be a teacher to us, dear Lord, Father, so that we do not stand idle, we do not stand ignorant. And so this day, dear Lord, we pray that, Father, as much as I will speak, I will do my best, dear Lord, to convey the truth. But, Lord, I pray that your spirit also speak and bring life to the words, dear Lord God, that your word has already spoken. May it, it be an investment in each one, dear Lord God, who is hearing this, whether now, at this particular time, or, Lord God, whenever they may hear it in the future. But my prayer is that, Lord God, that your voice will be heard above all. Teach us, Lord God, and Lord, help us to be teachable, so that, Lord, your word can stand, as it surely will, in this world, even unto the next, in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of introduction, let me start by making this kind of 
pronouncement. Do you believe that there is a division between the sacred and the secular? So we obviously believe that, to some extent, that there are things in which are right and wrong, and that's not what I'm getting at today. There are things that obviously honor God and obviously dishonor God. And that's not what I mean by the division between the sacred and the secular. I mean, are there areas of your life that you believe God is not interested in? That to some extent, it's up to you what you do with it. When Nehemiah set his heart right back in chapter 1 to rebuild a wall, it was not because he believed that the wall by itself would keep people safe. What we have here now in chapter 12 is that Nehemiah's project has now come to its fulfillment by the dedication. So it wasn't enough to build a wall, but now to dedicate it. With two grand processions, marching around the wall, singing praises to God, giving thanksgiving to, to God, As special as the temple was, as being God's sacred space, now, it was not an exclusively sacred place in relation to Israel as a whole. No king, I believe, or prophet, from what I've heard from the word before, has gone to the lengths that Nehemiah has to remind the people that the city as a whole is a sacred place. And the people in it are also sacred. And that's my marrying that whole idea of what do we consider to be that division between the sacred and the secular. When we look at this text here, the wall being dedicated in such a fashion as it was, was that it wasn't because the wall was so special. As obviously as important as it was, especially in those days. But the fact that Nehemiah saw that this also was a sacred place, that Jerusalem as a whole was going to be a sacred place. So maybe today as we kind of go through this text, we'll see about how we might need to broaden our idea of our sacred spaces and how we ought to conduct ourselves in it. I want to break the text down into two particular chunks. And the first twenty, the first chunk is verses 27 to 43, which deals with the possession itself. So the possession around the city must have been quite a sight. Even though there was a lot more work to be done in rebuilding homes, the city has nonetheless hit a significant milestone for the people at this time. The wall has now been built. To some extent, the building of houses without to some extent, a wall being there to secure it meant that maybe building a house would have been quite a silly thing to do. 
I mean, today, again, you know, we probably don't appreciate the fact that though we don't build cities with walls around it anymore, but the whole idea that we have borders, we have people who stand on those borders, who protect us, and, and to some extent we sleep well at night, not realizing that if they didn't do their job, we might not sleep so well. Again, if we transported ourselves into the ancient world and thought about what it would be like to live in an open country where anyone could come and take our things, and take ourselves even, then maybe you'll start to appreciate the whole idea of what it means to have borders and what it means to have walls. Slowly the city has developed to an extent that the first generation, that generation of Zerubbabel who came there, they had never seen this. They had never witnessed this progression. For them, they had to live and die with the fact that the temple was built, and that was enough for them in their generation. But now this generation was witnessing progress. They now had a temple. They now had a functioning priesthood. And now... They had a wall in which to rest secure behind. It would appear also that the plan to have a massive celebration and dedication was not a mere afterthought as it required gathering all the singers and Levites from surrounded villages. The singers have a central role in the celebration and not just mere background. You know, that, that whole idea that, you know, just, yeah, it would be nice to just kind of fill out the evening with somebody singing in the background, and you know, but that will not be the main focus. It would appear that the way that they're focused on here, that they were the key, they were the central to the plans of Nehemiah. Much of the development in the area of the music in the temple was put in place during the time of King David. And this is obviously mentioned in verse 46. David had went through great lengths in, in preparing Solomon for building the temple. He also invented many, many um, musical instruments. David is said to have been instrumental. And as you obviously read through the Psalms, we see many Psalms accredited to David. Whether he wrote them directly himself or whether he just commissioned them, we don't know. But the reality is, is that David, though a warrior, had a great love for music. And as such, he made sure that the temple experience and, and the, temple, the, 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 the experience of living in Jerusalem would be surrounded with music. That there would be something that would build the culture of Israel and their pride in God through music. And this may help us to capture the truly dynamic nature of the worship experience in that time and also lead us to appreciate the dynamic place the temple was. Let me give you some highlights of what this would have been like, that the visceral experience of going into the temple in, an ancient, in the ancient times. It was a place of prayer, as we know that Jesus himself declared it should have been, where people went and spoke, and we hear, especially in Luke, isn't it, about those two men who go to the temple to pray. Again, that special place, I want to go to the place where God is and pray. Or if you were in captivity, 
Moses says, pray towards Jerusalem so that your prayers will be heard. So it was a place where you prayed. So you were speaking. So you would hear these voices as you were praying. Other people were praying as well. The confessions of our sins and making intercession. So it would have been a place where you would have heard. Especially when you think of it in the times of Acts. Where people would have been speaking in many different languages. The beauty of hearing voices. So think of that as one dynamic. Then add on that, it was a place of sacrifice. Where you were touching. You were touching those bulls and you were touching those lambs and you were touching those goats as a, as, as a representation of my sins being transferred to it. And then you watched it being butchered. You were seeing that playing out of the cross as it would be. That visceral, this is dying for my sins. That, that whole idea of the, the blood being shed for you. How that would have spoken to yourself. That beast is dying in my place. It was a place of eating. So you were tasting as well. Fresh food off the barbecue. God's portion being cut from. The priest's portions being cut. And then you and your family being given that which was left over. And so you were there eating. And you had to eat. In such a way where you had to be generous because nothing was allowed to be left over. You were not allowed to leave the temple precinct without finishing that which you have dedicated to God. So if you can imagine as the children and, and the family are sitting there, the father was forced to be generous. Eat up kids, make sure none is left. Whereas maybe in their normal life, they would have been saying, well, maybe we'll need to save for the rest of the week. Let's not eat too much. Let's not get too excited. The temple was a place of generosity. And people would have seen that through tasting and the generosity of having to eat everything there. It was a place of music, as we've already been hearing. Hearing the, you know, the Psalms are just a sample of some of the greatest hits. Music would have been played. So as they're hearing these voices, they're also hearing the, the Levites sing to them praises of God. It was also a place of incense. You smell. Not only your food cooking, but you smell these incenses being burned. We, saw the, we go back to Exodus and we see the intricacy of mixing these um, special spices to make specific aromas to go up before God. And so you would have been smelling that. And so the whole idea of being in a temple was so exciting, so dynamic. And also, Eastern religion does not have a monopoly on burning incenses, right? Finally, it was a place of beauty as well. Especially when we speak of Solomon's temple, right? The gold and the, the decorations. And we, 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 we tend to think of the temple being a bland building because that's sometimes what we see, in, you know, when we think of ancient buildings, we think of ancient classical buildings, right? But when you think of the Middle East and when you look at Middle Eastern st structures, they were representative of, of, of so many different things. All those plain kind of geometrical shapes were not really there. When you watch like, you know, you know, the Persians or the Babylonians, you see all these intricate animals and creatures being sculpted into their buildings. And, you know, and even when you look at the Egyptians themselves as well, it was 
there was something to be seen. Architecture spoke theology to the eyes. And so it was that when they came into the temple, they saw trees and they saw pomegranates. They saw the, the temple, as it were, as a garden, as a place of beauty. Some might say even the stained glass windows of their own time. They were teaching the people who God was. Some might say, as I've just kind of let out, that this was the people's best attempt at recapturing Eden. Should not the church today also aim to minister to the body as well as the soul? Some churches try to merely entertain its congregations as a means of ministering to the senses, which, again, fair to them. But, you can, but they can often miss the needs of the soul. But that should not deter, deter us from trying to also reach both. For us who are trying to do church well, we should try to say, let's, we want to people to leave with their souls and their spirits enriched, but we want them to have an experience that they believe that, wow, you know, the church building was warm. It looked beautiful. There was something to eat. I, 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 I left full, not just only spiritually, but my body is full as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I went to the house of the Lord, to the people of God. Kind of moving swiftly on into 44 to 47, that last little section there, you know. Again, as we looked at this kind of in depth last week, the whole idea of investing in the church, investing in the people of God, making sure that you have the resources to keep your spiritual life flowing you know and we cannot underestimate this need to invest if you have an enterprise that you're on and you need the there are certain resources you know you need at the, at the at the start then you will make sure that those things are in place in order for it to flourish we can't just go into an enterprise believing that somehow that will show up uh, and then as it were plan for failure invest in the levites invest in the priests invest in those people who are going to keep on reminding us of the glory of god if jerusalem was going to continue to be the city set on a hill inhabited with holy people then it will need to make plans for such a culture to be nurtured as i said last week if if we don't value it we won't invest in it In this and the following chapter, Nehemiah makes a big deal. So this is looking also forward to chapter 13. I don't want to touch too much on there. But Nehemiah makes a big deal about the musicians and the singers being in place to make sure this happened. Let's put the resources aside for them so that they can be dedicated to their cause. As we've already stated, music had a prominent role in the temple worship, especially in the time of David. Obviously, as other ages have come, and obviously other kings who didn't necessarily share the heart of David, failed on this area. And so we believe that what Nehemiah here, unlike, you know, is recapturing this golden age of Israel. If we were ever going to be like that again, we really need to go back and be able to 
follow the better practices of times where we were successful. And so it is with the church today. We need also to look back and not just think, oh, merely in this, well, everything that we do today is progressive and that somehow we are always better off than Christians that lived in other ages. Sometimes we need to look back at other ages and say, look at what they did because I think they got it right. And try to incorporate them into, the, into our practices today and not assume that just technological advances and where we are today in terms of our education and spiritual knowledge or whatnot, that somehow we've got it all figured out. Often we have to look back and say, wow, maybe we need to do that again. By way of application now, how are you securing a culture of worship in your own life? So we look at the church as a whole and, again, look at ourselves individually. Are we praying? Confessing our sins? You know, is our voice heard? Are those around us hearing our voices and being able to see that in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, we are people who are speaking life and speaking the words of God? Are we remembering the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as we think about those animals that played such a vital role in displaying the, 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 the grievous nature of what their sins have cost? Are we remembering the cross of Christ? Are we remembering the fact that he has died for us? That in a sense, that gives us that momentum to, to give thanksgiving as well. So we're, we're living thankfully that our life has been speared. Do we live every day like as if we've just had our lives speared from the wrath of God? The joy that would bring, you know, again, looking at Luke 18, Matthew 18, isn't it? The joy of having been relieved of a great debt. Wouldn't that be a great day? In Christianity, every day should be like that. I've been speared a great debt. Are we engaged in quality fellowship? You know, with other believers, you know, again, you know, you'd very really, especially in the heyday of the temple, would have been going there by yourself. Are you meeting with other people? Are you bringing your, your family into the life of the Christian community? Are you enjoying that fellowship with them? And if you're not enjoying it, why? Because it should be sweet. Are we singing and hearing the music that speaks to the soul, you know? You know, again, both singing ourselves and, and, and hearing and having, again, that ability to listen to Christian music, music that encourages our heart, that sends sweet incense to the Lord. Are we doing that? In meditation, in the prayer, in the word and prayer, are we spending that time, in that quiet time of, of being able to sit and, and say, it's not just merely enough to speak, now let me be quiet in the Lord. Let me think about what that means. Let me give some time for the Spirit of God to speak into my life. Are you seeing the beauty of God around you as well? As you look at other people and see them as the image of God, even those people that infuriate you. The boss that gets on your nerves. The neighbor that you can't quite get along with. Just 
the world around us. Again, everything has had to slow down over the last year, right? And maybe again, you've had a new appreciation for just the world around you. You're spending so much time at home, all of a sudden you're realizing, wow, okay. There's a lot more around here than I realized. I know I'm beginning to appreciate more of the beauty of my local area. Sometimes you feel like you need to escape into the far off reaches in order to appreciate beauty. But now I'm beginning to find the beauty even in the local area. So with Ezra and the priests reading and explaining the Torah to the people. So that's, this is the progression that we're kind of going through. And accepting their confession, which we, we, we saw in chapter 9. And then the commitment to Yahweh, which we saw in chapter 10. Nehemiah completes this progression in dedicating the city and its people to God. As the city predominantly housed the priest, we should not make the assumption that it was only because of this fact that the city was now dedicated in such a fashion. Moses, from the dawn of Israel as a, as a nation, even when it was there in the wilderness, had already stated that Yahweh's desire was that the whole of the people would be a nation of priests. Exodus 19.6 says this, And you shall, make me, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So again, right from the very beginning, Moses has intended that all the people would be a holy people. Nehemiah, however, did not want the people to believe that the wall itself made them safe from attack. As the psalmist also says, Psalms 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Again, if God is not integrally involved in all these things, again, we build them, believing they keep us safe, and the wall itself keeps us safe. But it says that there is a spiritual dimension. You know, and ne you know, so Nehemiah takes that essential structure of protection, that, that wall that... that that stood around the city, and he adds to it a, 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 a spiritual function. It also functions as, as a place in which we also should be a division between the land and the people out there, that this is a holy people that need to be preserved. The wall may be able to keep a hostile army out, but what about the evil intent of the heart? If a city is given over to evil, is it really worth saving? I want to read a section which I know I, I often go to and I, I find it so compelling because, again, it spoke to the reasons why Israel itself found itself in this dilemma. And it's in the time of Jeremiah. Before the king Nebuchadnezzar came and raised the city, he was instructed to stand outside the, the temple and warn the people by saying this. And I want to read from Jeremiah 7, 1 to 30. Please follow if you can, but just listen. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and you and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to the place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. That last section refers to um, 1 Samuel 4, when the Philistines overtook Shiloh because of the evil of Eli's house. The Lord says, I can't let structures stand. I can't let temple precincts stand if they don't actually bring salt and light into the world. There is no point to it. If we are not that city set on a hill, shining the light of what it means to serve the Lord, then there is no point whatsoever in keeping it going. Nehemiah knew that the protection of the city and its future continuance did not depend on a strong wall and a glamorous temple, but on a people wholly given over to God. Williamson, in his um, shorter commentary, captures what was at stake for them and also for us. And I just want to read this excerpt because I think it, it's a great summary for as we kind of winding down in this, in this book of Nehemiah. And he says this, Behold, this chapter, behind this chapter lies a concern for the distinctive identity of the community. In the face of strong external pressures, it has been in danger of compromise to the extent that its witness would have been diluted and rendered ineffective. A firm and solid focus on the center of the community, proper worship of God at its designated sanctuary, was essential. The Christian church continues to face these issues, albeit in different forms. The principles for appropriate response remain the same. A strong core of leadership and a clear line of demarcation at the fringes. So again, he's like saying the leadership have to rise up. They have to be a strong core who know why they're there, who know what purpose is. As we see in the text, that the Levites, the priests, need to take that role. They need to teach the people. They need to know where they stand. But also to the fringes, to those who may have just come in or those who are at the fringe of the church, they also know that they are also a part of this church. They're a part of this community and not a part of something else, that they're not actually on the wall. That even the least of us knows where we stand. People on the fringes knows that they're believers. And that's why I, I was mentioning that last week about this whole idea of, of, of well, I'm not quite with them. 
where we kind of lean to that weak side of, of that tension between community and individuality, where you, you kind of shift your weight, where you feel like you can, as it were, separate yourself. And that's what we can't do. And this is what Williamson is saying. He goes on and says, from a position of strength and security, it is possible to extend a hand of welcome and forgiveness to those outside. From a position of weakness, both parties will sink together. So this whole idea of Israel, as we see, are trying to reach out to the community. And they're, they're, they're marrying into these other, these other families and they're losing their identity. There was no problem with people being married, as it were, to nations that God hasn't put the ban on to marry them if they knew what they were coming into and they were coming into Christianity. They were coming into Yahwehism. They knew where they stand. But when we are so weak and unstable in our relationship with God that we are so easily susceptible to other ideas, then, again, this is what was Israel's failure. And no doubt it will be our failure too if we try to reach out when we haven't really got a firm structure here. That inreach is, if you look at it, more important than the outreach. We don't know where we stand. If we, what are we inviting people into? So that's taken from the New Bible Commentary, the fourth edition um, by, by IVP, um, Hugh Williamson. Again, great, great commentary there on, on the book of Nehemiah. If you want to go and read it, I would encourage you to do so. So our approach to this should probably not be to rush out and try to dedicate all the essentials of our life that is not the point of the text. The singing and meeting at the temple of God should have led the people who had seen the hard years of living in the land to a renewed sense of joy in the Lord, who had seen them through all these troubles and will also see them through what lay ahead. So the dedication was there as a reminder. You know, it's not just dedication for dedication's sake, not just singing songs for singing songs' sake. It's, it's actually because... They had reached a milestone. Let's praise God. Let's give thanks that the hard years of living in tents or living in, in makeshift structures, and that's all we're, we're seeing a, a turning point. Let's give thanks. Maybe you're seeing a turning point in your life where you want to give thanks to God for something that he is doing in your life, and, and you want to dedicate more of yourself to him, and that's what it is, is that you see the point to doing it. He has seen me through this far. He's going to see me through again. If you are not a strong gospel-centered community, live in a salt, that means adding flavor, being something in contrast to the world, which is, which is, is <laughs> the world being that, in that form of chaos. And we're not light, you know, a, 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 a dark, we're, we're shining in darkness, but yet the world will look at us and, and think that we're darkness and they're light. But the reality is, is that they can see that contrast because they want to believe that they are good. But we know that what goodness really means, and it means to be in the Lord. It means to be in that triune being, to be saved through Christ, to have his spirit, and to be in the Father's care. And this is what they don't have. But people are aware that we are different. Then we will not have the ability, if we are not like this, if we don't have salt and light, then we will not have the ability to offer anything to the world that is perishing.
As Williamson reminds us, as Williamson reminds us, if we are not strong and secure here, then what we have built will be wiped out, even though we may still be saved. You know, and again, I, I want us to remind us of 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Again, I'll read in your hearing. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that has, uh, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we may build, but not knowing that we're building well. We may lose it. The church of Christ goes on. But I want us to be aware that we can build badly. And that would be a tragedy for us even if individually we are saved. We want to be a healthy community, as we've said many times, and so let us strive towards that. I want us also to be in a position where we can start to see that the boundaries of our spiritual life beyond, go beyond a Sunday, or certain spiritual routines, or even certain helpful routines of things that we do. Our work, maybe our community projects. When we start to see how God is involved there, that God, that we can start to see that boundary isn't just the temple, that we're trying to do in a specific sacred space, but that actually the, the whole city, the whole of my life should fill out this dedicated life to God. It's only then when we will start to see that broad scope of God's desire to be a holy people conformed to his son. So will we also be dedicated to the cause? Will we? That's my prayer to you and my message to you as the Lord has given me strength to do so. Let's pray. Father, we are so Thankful again, Lord, let your word speak. Let every man be a liar. Let your word, Lord God, be leashed in our life so that it will be able to do something there, Lord God. Stir us up there, Lord Father, to some good end there, Lord Father, in which you will be glorified. May we look at our lives there, Lord God, and the length of our dedication of it there, Lord Father. Will we have the wisdom like Nehemiah there, Lord Father, to say, actually, the city itself the whole boundary, the wall in which capsulates us, all of it is actually yours there, Lord God. And if we are not dedicated to you, then, Lord Father, what is the point? Even if we have a temple, even if we have a church to go to on a Sunday, what is the point if my life beyond a Sunday does not reflect the glory of God? Lord, may it stir us up. May we realize, dear Lord Father, how we walk from day to day. The areas of our life that we, are, we've, we have assumed you are disinterested in or have been unwilling even, dear Lord God, to give over to you. Lord, let us be able to start to dedicate it to you and start to say, Lord, let your will be done. 
then we truly give those over, Lord. And sometimes this is just about a matter of maturity, dear Lord God. As we get there and we, we start to understand, actually, the Lord really does want all of me. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just something symbolic. He actually wants everything. And not because you need our money, not because you, 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 your, our time is, 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 is so precious to you, dear Lord God, but because, Lord Father, for our own, our own benefit. Because when we give ourselves over to you, dear Lord God, we will see that as a dedicated thing, you know, that, that Romans 12, 1, isn't it? Our lives wholly given over to you. It's only then we start to see the benefits of what it means to be saved. So, Lord, help us, Lord, as we, we, we endeavor to make our lives wholly dedicated to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.